Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to the works of Thomas Pinchon. Uh, in this episode, we are going to cover the play within The Crying of Lot 49, The Courier's Tragedy. Um, this is about a about a six-page play, as it, as it were. It's more of a summary of the play. Uh, and there's a lot going on in it to the point that it is almost intentionally obscure and hard to follow. Um, so this episode is basically just going to be us kind of talking about what we think about it and, and what we came away with uh, from reading it. So um, I will kind of kick things off and, and mention that um, I've spent a good chunk of the last week or so kind of going over the Charles Hollander article about how not just the play, but the whole of Lot 49 is a sort of um, t- cautionary tale of the JFK assassination and the implications that came with it. We mentioned this on the last uh, episode about chapter three. Um, I want to know how, how Luke and, and Will, how you guys feel about that, that overall concept applying really more focused in this, in the play. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we got into this a little bit last week. There are some kind of details in the play that do seem to point to it being um, a possible uh, reference to the JFK assassination. I want to say Will brought up the fact that uh, whenever Nicolo is assassinated, um, there are three uh, assassins who show up who I don't think are in the official, like uh, official like text of the play. It was the um, the director's kind of creative creative Liberty. edition. Yeah, edition. creative liberty. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, which is interesting. I as as I did I did look over that Hollander um thing a bit too, which he does mention the fact that I think Congress in the seventies, the late seventies, went over the JFK assassination in the Warren Report and did talk about how uh Lee Harvey Oswald would have really struggled to get off uh three shots with the type of rifle he was using. Uh, and the number of shots that Lee Harvey Oswald uh, did was um, was three. Um, so we'll link that to the shooters on the knoll, um, on the grassy knoll, which I do think is is a is a good comparison to make. It is. I did notice this time going through the play that those uh, assassins are described as somewhat. Um, somewhat like mutants or like somehow like deformed um somehow like maybe perhaps supernatural um which is kind of a it maybe speaks to the fact of you know how there's so much about the jfk assassination that is unexplained and perhaps at this point in time unexplainable um i am kind of of the opinion that with the jfk assassination that we'll never really know um exactly what happened and so you know we kind of have to turn to stuff like fan theories and stuff yeah it it's one of those things i think it's you know obviously i think it's arguably the most famous conspiracy theory maybe maybe the moon landing being the only other one that could surpass it but i think this is the one that most people even the ones that would normally not ascribe to you know uh conspiracy theories might have a little bit more sway in in falling on the side of you know there's more to this than we were originally told. 
I I think it comes down to an Occam's razor kind of situation for me, and that the 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 idea that we we don't have, like you said, we don't have a whole lot of evidence either way anymore because of how things were handled at the time, um, and you know the thing, you know things disappeared or were destroyed or whatever the case was, and so we'll, yeah, we probably never will know. I think using all the information that we currently have, the Oswald theory holds some water but at the same time like i i as someone who has i spent a lot of my early life hunting i know how difficult it is to get off uh, even one accurate shot from a distance uh so to get three on a moving target in that kind of situation it it is hard to believe but at the same time i also struggle to believe that there could be such a massive um government cover-up when you know even 10 years later uh they couldn't cover up a break-in at a hotel it kind of makes it difficult to really come down on on either side of the fence for me um but it's nonetheless absolutely fascinating and i think that with this i definitely think there is some symbolism in here that is a little more intentional that kind of points to that idea that there was some kind of involvement and that Oswald was not the one responsible or at least not the only one responsible. Definitely. He, uh, so there, there are kind of, in my mind, there are a few different ways you interpret all of the events surrounding the JFK shooting. Um, and there's the typical kind of conspiracy theory, which just says that, you know, Oswald was a patsy. There were three guys on the, grassy knoll that each took shots at him um and to some extent you know like don delilo in libra does a pretty good job of forging the connections between those old school conspiracy theory explanations um and then there's a a newer explanation that still is a conspiracy theory that holds a lot less um it's a lot less sinister i suppose and I don't know if either of you have heard this, it's basically the idea that one of the Secret Service agents had a misfire and shot JFK, and that accounts for one of the bullets. I, I have heard that, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's that, the one, I, I find that one pretty believable, honestly. That one's the most believable to me, but it feels too simple at the same time to be entirely baseless, because it's, it's entirely built on assumptions. Um, but, you know, who who trusts the Warren Report? Like, this whole play is, to some extent, kind of a parody of the Warren Report and the what's-his-name paper about the magic eye of Lot 49. Yeah, this is this is something I got into in the episode last week, but I do think that the information overload of the play could be a reference to the Warren Report. Um, throwing throwing so much information at the consumer of the of the of the of of the play um leads to a, a sense of you know like what 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 parts of this am i supposed to care about what parts am i not supposed to care about um Adipa herself seems to kind of struggle with what's important what's not important uh generally in this play um which i do think could be this is i guess a bit of a spoiler but we get into maxwell's demon i want to say in the next chapter maybe in the fifth yeah. chapter chapter four four yeah yeah and that's, I mean, one part of the part of Maxwell's demon is is um, a some type of entity um, kind of perfectly sorting through information, um, which does seem to kind of apply to the book as a whole and perhaps to the play. Um, and there are one thing I noticed this time through the play 
is that the the summary of the play in the book is a mixture of of high and low art like a lot of the you know like the the actual dialogue of the play is very is i think like blank verse or something it's very um very complicated and uh historically accurate i assume and then the narrator uh adds some kind of um like the, the narrator's phrasing when he's summarizing the play does seem to be a bit um maybe not crass or anything but just a bit uh informal so there's a there's a weird mix of formal and informal uh in the play uh a mix of like high high art and low art um that does seem to be kind of it it, it adds to the confusion of the of the entire thing yeah right right here i have a quote um Honest Niccolo, who always has difficulty hiding his feelings, observes that if the two events turn out to be at all connected and can be traced back, traced to Duke Angelo, boy, the Duke better watch out is all. Or it just jumps mid-sentence, not even, you know, between the, the verses of the play and the narration of the summary. It just mid-sentence jumps from kind of a high art, pretentious framing to, yeah, you better watch out. One thing I think is is interesting that I kind of just thought of in the last few minutes is the fact that Drablet, uh this is a spoiler, but Drablet eventually kills himself. And Drablet calls himself, he, he later in the chapter talks about how the play is basically all in his head and that without the without him, the play wouldn't happen. The play would have no significance. Uh, and then he later dies. Um, so, you know, like, I mean, I do think that... Um, the JFK assassination, our view on it would be quite different if Lee Harvey Oswald hadn't been assassinated, and then if the person who assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald hadn't also died uh, within, I think, a year or two of the assassination, maybe two or three, pretty, but pretty short, yeah. Um, so that does kind of speak. That does seem to be also kind of a reference to like the person who, without without that person, none of this would happen. None of this would have happened. Uh, dying pretty quickly afterwards, uh, therefore leaving the the audience and Adipa herself with more questions than answers. What one part that really stuck out to me when I was reading through this again and and I I tried to reread it again um a couple of times and and I did so today again in with the the whole JFK thing kind of looming in my mind and I did find so there's a there's a brief little part right as the the summary of the play is starting and it's talking about uh, Pasquale's uh, plot to do away with Niccolo by basically playing hide and seek and tricking him into getting into a cannon. The description of what would happen, what he was hoping to happen is so uh, evocative of the JFK assassination, especially having seen the Zapruder film. Um, it, it was, it took me a second to like process. And then when I reread it, I was like, Holy shit. So it says, out in a bloody rain to feed our fields amid the menad roar of Nitra's song and Sulphur's Cantus Firmus. So I had to look some of this up because I, I had no idea off the top of my head what some of this was. But the out on a bloody rain to feed our fields. Obviously, you know, JFK was in a car driving past, not a field necessarily, but Dealey Plaza definitely has its grassy areas. Um, amid the mained roar. So... That was one thing I had to look up. The, so Maenad in Greek mythology was a female follower of Dionysus, and the word itself means mad or demented. And Nitra is um, a sort of gunpowder that was used in the Civil War. I think it was potassium nitrate specifically. Yeah. 
and then um, Sulfur's Cantus Firmus. So the only thing I could find for Cantus Firmus is it's a musical term about um, polyphonic choruses. So several voices, lots of voices kind of happening at once. So in, in kind of rereading it as, you know, this moment of bloodshed on a field or a grassy area where there's these mad or, or, you know, at that point, demented people who just saw a man killed and his head literally explode from gunshots. And, you know, the Cantus firm is many gunshots. You, we, we were talking earlier about the three uh, potential gunmen. So I just, that stopped me kind of in my tracks when I reread that and, and kind of put that layer on top of it. Yeah, and I, I think, I could be getting the timeline of the play wrong, but I think Nic- Nicolo's eventual death um, does seem to lead into, I think it's it's somebody being tortured, I want to say. It does lead into some violence, um, which I, I've i read stuff about, not maybe as it relates to Pynchon specifically, just stuff in general, about Kennedy... Um, supposedly opposing um, the war, like the escalation of the war in Vietnam, Kennedy basically being um, opposed to a bunch of different stuff that eventually happened. Um, One thing with that is I was, I was actually, I didn't put this together um, very quickly, but I want to say the Gulf of Tonkin incidents happened pretty quickly after JFK was assassinated. I could be wrong about that. It's um, definitely either right before or right after. They, that was basically kind of a pretext to get into Vietnam. Yeah. Um, it was August 2nd and 3rd, 1964. Okay, yeah. So it would have been, so been not like a year after. Eight or, yeah, not even a year after, yeah. yeah. Um, but there does seem to be a, a connection between um, things like... Um, our, our efforts to undermine the Cuban... Um, Cuban rule of, of Fidel Castro and stuff like that. Like Kennedy does seem to be greatly opposed to a bunch of stuff that ended up happening under LBJ. Um, and there, there are some rumors I think about Kennedy doing some like kind of sweeping changes um, to the, to the, uh, the America, to America and stuff. One thing I also just thought of is this, the chapter does feature uh, mentions of, of the mafia and Cosa, Cosa Nostra which mm-hmm. I, I do believe that Kennedy was associated with, like, having pissed off the mafia. And um, I, I think he was kind of involved in, in, the, in, a, in a escalating the effort to stop the, the mafia's growth in the U.S. Yeah. Well, there, there are rumors that his father was involved in the mafia in a quid pro quo scheme sorts. So something that, that Hollander brought up that I thought was interesting was the connection to... So the character of David that's mentioned um, when uh, Oedipa is at, when she first finds out about, about waste um, is a reference to John David, who was a a Dutch statesman who to kind of summarize everything was kind of in, in a similar sense to JFK was opposed to a lot of what William of Orange was doing uh, and ended up getting killed and publicly displayed and, it was, you know, it was this whole big thing. And so, and Hollander says in his article, and I'm going to quote it here because I think it's, it's pretty um, important how he phrases this. If we stand to lot 49 as Oedipus stands to the Courier's tragedy, there should be some relation between what we get and what she gets. 
The play, the text within the text, reveals something analogous, not to what Oedipa is looking for, information about bones and some connection to Inverarity's estate, but to what we should be alert to by now, having to do with political assassination. We have been alerted to Dallas. Oedipa, like other pension characters, faced with information they have been seeking, doesn't get it. We should. The analog in the play is political assassination. That is a pretty concise uh, summary of what's going on in this chapter, and especially the play, I think, yeah. I do, I do find it difficult, just I think out of some contrarian impulse, to uh, fully endorse Hollander's reading, if only because I look at his arguments and I say, well, that makes complete sense. But I also see a lot of places where, yeah, sure, that person had that name, um, and DeWitt is probably not necessarily a false flag, but you can't just, you know, ascribe your specific understanding of the whole book based on, you know, half of the names having perceived connection to your reading. Yeah, no, and I absolutely agree. I I think his, I, I don't agree with his, his analysis of the whole book being a, a JFK tale. Uh, I I do find that connection more so in the play itself. And he even goes on to mention that the technique, he says the technique here is uh, enthymematic. Uh, an enthymeme is a rhetorical device consisting of a logical construct within the conclusion, unexp- with the conclusion unexpressed to be drawn by the reader or listener. So I think that right there is kind of, he, he kind of goes on to make some connections that are, I think I mentioned this in the earlier episode that are pretty tenuous and really you you really have to stretch to get them there. And I think that, and, and again, we talked about this with the chapter three episode. I personally see the book more as a, the, the kind of semiotic reading of it where we are looking for symbols where there were main me, where there may be none and creating meaning out of something that may or may not actually be there. And I think that's kind of the whole point of the book as a whole uh, as with a lot of pensions, other stuff as well. But I, th- I think the play itself is where I can really draw the JFK connection. Yeah, I agree. I, I, complete, I completely believe that Hollander's going about it the right way when it comes to interpreting this novel and interpreting pensions novels. I just uh, wish he weren't so insistent on one particular reading. Um, because, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the magic eye analogy is a perfect way to look at this book. You know, you, you keep your eye on the plot and you keep your eye on the theme and something happens between the two of them. That yeah. just, I, I just find it, uh, like, let me, let me scroll through one second. I saw something earlier in the essay that really. This whole book can kind of, it's kind of like choose your own interpretation. And I do think that this book, you can read this, this book and this chapter and the play is uh, being a metaphor um for the jfk assassination or you can just view it as a complete red herring i mean the mention of dallas earlier in the in this chapter it could be a red herring it does seem to be somewhat uh random in the context of the sentence it's in you know none of it there's no like real smoking gun i would say um that we can point to that you know like definitively um links this book to the jfk assassination um, I think that's kind of one of the beauties of this book, though, is, you know, it's something that we've gone over in general, but there's so many different interpretations you can draw from the book. And each of them has points for like points for that interpretation. And then you can also find 
exceptions to the rule uh, about that interpretation. So, yeah, and I think that's true of, of Pinchon in general. Um, that there's, you know, and we talked about this. There's, there's no one particular way, as as Will said, to analyze uh, any of his work. And I, I think that the point of it all is to kind of get you thinking. There's there's so much that's sprinkled throughout every one of his books, and so many references and um, ideas that you kind of have to go and search for the answers for, or not necessarily the answers. You have to go and search for the meaning of. And I think that that's part of what I really like about his work is is he's not going to do the work for you. It's up to you to go. You know, if you don't understand this particular science terminology he's using, or if you don't understand this historical reference it's kind of on you to go look it up to get the context that you, that you need to further analyze what it is you're reading and, and to come away with your interpretation of, of that. Yeah. He's, he's not going to compromise an accurate metaphor for the sake of accessibility. Right. There's no footnotes in a pinch on book. It's you go get your encyclopedia, go jump on Wikipedia and do, do some research. What, what were both of your as impressions of the play the first time through beyond just inscrutable did you come to anything more specific yeah i mean i know you said beyond inscrutable but that's mostly what i focused on whenever i first read the play is how confusing it was uh i didn't know what to care about who to care about i honestly kind of i remember getting confused about who nicolo even was you know i kind of i a lot of the information seemed to kind of just go in one ear out the other um I find it very confusing. Um and I mean it, it is it is vaguely entertaining. It does it does have a a Shakespearean type um feel to it. Like you do kind of feel like you might be reading a a memor- a, a summarization of a Shakespeare play. Um I don't I'm not an expert on Shakespeare. There are a few Shakespeare plays whose titles are coming to mind as possible inspirations for this, but I don't have I I don't even have summaries of of Shakespeare's plays memorized um so I I don't want to make an ass of myself by comparing it to one of them um but I do think that there are probably some aspects of Shakespeare's I mean there's a, there's an aspect of Shakespeare's like tragedies comedies and histories probably to this play Yeah it's um so it, I think Hamlet's probably the Shakespeare play that's most like this for obvious reasons um you know father dies gotta kill incestuous family etc um but it actually seems like the the inspiration for the title at least would be the revenger's tragedy which is a contemporaneous uh jacobian revenge play with a similarly large cast of characters and a somewhat convoluted plot though doesn't seem similar in any real way just big big number of characters I know the first time I read this, this was, I think, this was a little bit later in my reading of Pinchon, and I don't know why specifically, but I know for sure the first time I read it and I got to the play, um, I it was like I was in a fugue state and I just kind of like finished and I was like, what the fuck? What did I just read? And I think part of that is I, I have never really been a huge Shakespeare fan. I respect his work. It just has never resonated with me in any particular way. My father-in-law is a huge Shakespeare fan. I should probably ask him uh, if he could provide some insight on any connections here. But it's definitely, you know, there is that information overload. There's so many 
just characters that are thrown in all of a sudden that I had no idea who was who. Um, the the kind of shift to hyper violence when um, Dominico is being tortured was jarring. Uh, I know to expect it now because you know I've read it a few times, but going getting to that point in a book where there hadn't really been any violence at all, and then just getting this like George R. R. Martin level of torture uh, was a really kind of whiplash situation. But as I've read it more, it you know, parts of it have clicked. I still, you know, I'll fully admit, I still have trouble piecing together the, the kind of linearity of it all and, and who's who, but I still, I, I appreciate it more every time I read it. Yeah. My first time through was definitely one of complete perplexity. Um, although I honestly, when I read it, you know, I saw, okay, uh, squabbling, uh, feudal Italian kingdoms, and, you know, father gets killed and his half-brother's put in place. And I was like, oh, Hamlet. But the the next thoughts I really had, beyond just trying to grapple with literally any useful piece of information, was that this doesn't, it doesn't feel like a Shakespeare play. It feels like, well, it feels like a parody of what, like, kind of, you know, as, as he lampshades, it feels kind of like a parody of what Puritans believed Shakespeare and other similar playwrights plays were. Or yeah, just and there is that violence. There is that reference to them making the play making fun of Puritans, I think, correct? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, altogether yeah. a most anti-clerical scene, perhaps intended as a sop to the Puritans of the time, a useless gesture since none of them ever went to plays regarding them yeah. for some reason as immoral. Was there anything else? Anybody have any other things they want to bring up about the play itself? No, I mean, I did kind of just want to point out that I think I basically already said this, but it could a lot of stuff that we've talked about could just be red herrings. Um, I do think that Pynchon pretty consistently uses literary devices such as red herrings to kind of and especially in this book um, where it's so hard to to figure out what's important and what's not important. And I think that that's especially uh, comes through with the play. Yeah, well, I think that ties into his the the paranoia theme that runs through all of his books that you know peppering in information and and kind of forcing you to think about its importance or non-importance is a huge part of what he does and especially in in this where there's not as much time for everything to play out because obviously this is the shortest of his books so there's just, you know, it feels like there's a lot more getting thrown at you in a lot less time. I would like to ask whether either of you believe there to be any intentional symbolism in uh, the fact that Gennaro is the only remaining named character at the end of the play. Because I, I you know, I can't come up with an analog between him and the JFK assassination, really, unless you want to call, what, LBJ? Gennaro, even though LBJ never waged any sort of revolution of any kind. Yeah, that's... It does seem... One thing, actually, since I actually kind of vaguely meant to bring this up, but it does... The narrator of the book does go does mention the fact that the when this play was uh, written and performed, it would have been a little bit before the British Civil War, which at the time of when this book was published, um, 
I do think one thing I I did a I took a grad school class about the Beatles in um, a few years ago, and part of my research was just kind of generally about the '60s for this paper. And one thing that kind of came through a little bit stronger whenever I was doing some independent research is how how close to revolution um, we got in the '60s. I feel like that can kind of get lost in translation sometimes. Um, you know, it's, we. I I don't I don't it's not as emphasized as it used to be just how unstable the country was. Um so it does seem to be I mean and, and the crying of lot 49 could almost um have a similar kind of role or like a similar type of timeline as in you know like it came out in 66 which would have been about a year or two um before things got like really um chaotic in america um which i think is interesting that it, it the play seems to kind of presage presage uh, presage uh the british civil war while pynchon's work seems to kind of be like a lead into um how how uh, revolutionary things almost got yeah we might even be missing an entire reading of the play as a metaphor for the running up to the civil war because sure, the discord's there, but maybe we just, as non-English historians, uh, lack the context to understand that this is clearly a direct metaphor for this earl fighting this duke or something. And uh, just the last thing I can think of is um, there, a recurring moment in the play is the allusion to Tristero without the name being said. Like for example, um, after after uh, Duke Angelo orders people to pursue Niccolo, he says uh, the sentence is Vittorio knows every flunky in the court idling around in their swamulia livery and exchanging significant looks knows it is all a big in joke. The audiences of the time knew Angelo knows, but he does not say as closed as close as he comes does not illuminate and it's just a it's a recurring thing for Oedipa feeling like she's outside of the joke but seeing all of the components of it you know what I have one more thing I just remembered I had this tab up so the pension wiki mentioned something that I I've been racking my brain for the last couple days trying to see if I could figure it out but I can't so in the page that they have on the courier's tragedy itself, um, it says, but amidst the entire mess, there's really one, only one plot element not fully explained. Niccolo is being sent. Niccolo is sent from Angelo bearing a letter. This letter was the quote lying document in which Angelo sues for peace, but that letter isn't found on Niccolo's, uh, but that isn't the letter found on Niccolo's body. The new letter, although bearing the same seal as the original is a confession by Angelo of all his crimes closing with the revelation of what really happened to the lost guard of Fagio. Although seemingly written by Angelo, it makes reference to Nicola's death, which just happened. Since Angelo is presently in an orgy and in any case back in his castle, it's clear that this new letter is a forgery by who else but Tristero. So Tristero is summoned by Angelo to kill Nicolo. They betray Angelo, kill Nicolo anyway, but all to incite Gennaro to destroy, destroy Squamuglia. Um, so that like that whole paragraph alone just makes my head hurt trying to wrap my brain around everything that happened earlier. But I wanted to know what y'all, if, if y'all picked up on that at all or, or noticed that, because I hadn't ever thought about it until it was 
there and I saw it. I have um, two two readings of that. Either that if the Tristero is really that same, and this is a my, minor spoilers for chapter five, I think. Um, if Tristero is what W A S T E, then they are letter carriers. You know, they went, they killed the guy, but they took a letter and they left a letter. Um, uh, and you, you know, no reason Angelo couldn't have written a new letter in time. Um, and alternatively, that it's a comment on reading things like the Warren report, that it could be, it can either be a whole mess of nothing, just a bunch of like weird grandstanding, like uh, Niccolo reads, or it could be like what Gennaro receives, which is a confession to all of your misdeeds. Any ideas, Luke? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that at all. Whenever I was reading it does, the pension wiki does point out, this does seem to speak to how Tristero can kind of seem a bit like all, all encompassing or um, so devious that there's nothing that they won't do in order to achieve their ends, um, which doesn't really come through in the rest of this book, I would say, necessarily. It does. It speaks to a, a, a sinister aspect to the Tristero that, that doesn't seem to be present in the 1960s version, I would say. Um, and I, I just want to make it clear my um, my understanding of the like oh there's no reason that Angelo couldn't have written it is not that like you know the the wiki is just lying you know it's just that it doesn't seem obvious to me that uh, you know just because Angelo is currently in an orgy when Niccolo dies doesn't mean that you know he sent he sent the assassins he knew they were gonna kill him. Yeah, I might I might have to go back and just reread it again with that in mind and try to parse out what I can. Well, that I think does it for our little bonus episode on um the courier's tragedy. Um so we'll be uh with our new episode we'll be back uh to cover chapter 4 uh on our regular schedule and um, we would, I would really appreciate if, you know, people wrote in either to the email mapping the zone pod at gmail.com or drop something in on the, on the subreddit. Um, I'm curious to see how other people, uh, interpreted the play and what they thought of it. Yeah. We can't have, we can't have gotten everything out in the past, you know, 30 or so minutes. No, but that'll do it for us. Uh, we will catch everyone when we come back with our chapter four discussion. Bye. All right. See y'all.